This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. And starting tomorrow, the uh, nation's attention in advance of Scotiabank Hockey Day in Canada will very much be on Victoria, B.C. The events begin tomorrow and culminate with a full-day broadcast with your host, Ron McLean. Uh, as always, it's become a destination program for so many Canadians. Uh, list of people involved this year include uh, your host, Ron McLean, David Amber, Ken Reed, Ivanka Osmak, Kevin Bieksa, Kelly Rudy, Jennifer Botterill, Randeep Janda, Takdir Thindal, uh, Lanny McDonald, Darcy Tucker, Cassie Campbell, Pascal, Wendell Clark, Andrew Ferentz, Nathan Lafayette, Kirk McLean, Jeff Scott, who's the Director of Community Involvement and Growth at the NHL, and one of my favorite hockey players. Man, did he torture the Maple Leafs for years. Former Buffalo Sabre to Trent Red Wing and Edmonton Oiler. He'll be front and center as well, the great Danny Gare. Danny, thanks so much for doing this today. How are you? I'm good, Jeff. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, uh, the pleasure is all mine. It's great to hear your voice. And uh, before we get to reminiscing about some of the uh, some of the the, f- the finer times that you had around the NHL, and I do want to talk uh, about your new company uh, as well, Can Ice, because uh, I'm fascinated with synthetic ice. We'll we'll get to that in a couple of moments. Um, I, I do want to ask you. You're a, you're a BC guy, uh, born in Nelson, BC. Yeah. Uh, what does an event like you know Scotiabank Hockey Day in Canada mean for you, Danny Gare? Well, it, it just, it's the tradition, uh, the culture of the game. I think um, it brings families, minor hockey players, coaches, people from those cities that, that represent it and host it um, all together. I remember when it was in Nelson, though, back in the 2010, my hometown, yeah. and uh, what a big event it was. And I'm looking forward to going to Victoria on Thursday to be a part of it and see a lot of my old... Uh, you know, teammates and maybe some um, competitors and that uh, I played against. But, um, yeah, I mean, the Cardinal brothers, Dougie Bodger, um, they, they all went nice. to my hockey school. I used to have hockey school out in Lake Cowichan years ago. Yep. And when they were young kids, Paul Correa, Robin Bauer, I mean, they all they all played there. So oh, wow. it'll be fun to re- reminisce and get to see them again. Uh, that sounds fantastic. With uh, with Danny Gare, part of Scotiabank Hockey Day in Canada, former NHLer, um, and you know one of the, one of the things that you know you and I have, have talked a number of times here. Uh, one of the things that right. I, uh, I I never asked you about. Whenever I finish a conversation with you, I'm like, oh, I forgot to ask Danny about this one. I think this might have been in your in your first season. So there's there's I mean with hockey players, there's you know certain boxes that you want to check. You know, uh, getting drafted, uh, signing your first right. contract, first game, first goal, all these types of things. I believe I think it was your first year. It was a game late April against the Montreal Canadiens, and you get I believe it must have been your first Gordie Howe hat trick, the goal, the assist. The fight was Doug Risebrow. Do you recall right. that day, Danny Gare? <laughs> well, I had a lot of fun my first year. I mean, I scored my first goal in 18 <laughs> seconds against uh, Bobby yes. Orr and Don Cherry's inaugural game, so that was kind of fun. Um, you know, I, I went to the Stanley Cup Finals that year against the Flyers, but I do remember that because Dougie Riseborough was a tough, tough, tough bugger. He, he you know, he caught yep. me by surprise, and um, he caught me early, um, and it was uh, it was a good scrap. And I always had great respect for Doug, and uh, we had we played against each other for many years when they had those great Canadian teams. Oh, uh, you know, th- those, um, like, your Buffalo Sabres were a real good team as well. And, you know, I- I'm always curious, too, you know, which team, because I can recall, like, that Sabres team would come into Toronto or Toronto would go to the old odd and, you know, Toronto would surrender right. two points and, and Buffalo would, would, would take them back home. Which team did you most enjoy playing against? Because the games against the Flyers were great. Uh, the games against the Habs yeah. were great. The games against the Bruins, the old Adams division, those were fantastic. And the games against the Maple Leafs were, were tremendous as well. Which were your favorites to play in? You know, they're all they were all uh, great teams to play against. That Adams division was one tough division, and um, I look back at Montreal always going into the Forum. I mean, watching Hockey Night in Canada. I mean, uh, on Saturday nights, and the same goes mm-hmm. for Toronto. I mean, it was it was a thrill from Western Canada, boy, little town in Nelson that I grew up in, watching it every night with my family, and my dad. And, and then getting to play in those rinks and, and, and to play well in them, which was even better. But, um, no, I'd probably have to say the least, you know, because, 
we were a great skating team back in the mid-'70s. We had the connection. We had, you know, our line yeah. with Luston Ramsey, Freddie Stanfield, Peter McDabb, Rick Dudley. I mean, we were we were a good, tough, but skating team. We were a fast team. And, and that ice in Toronto was always the best to me, always the best. I mean, it was hard. It was hmm. fast. And it uh, it really made a big difference with our team. So I enjoyed the Saturday night hockey night in Canada's in Toronto. Those are awesome. You know, I, I always enjoyed um, when it was the Buffalo Sabres and the Toronto Maple Leafs, the goalie matchup of Mike Palmatier and Don Edwards. And man, I mean, right. that, that, that right. battery of Don Edwards and Bob Sove was fantastic uh, for so many years for the Buffalo Sabres. Um, what are your memories or do you have any stories about playing with uh, or being on the same team as the great Don Edwards? Well, we used to call him the penguin because his his toes would always turn in, you know, like a penguin, and he walked like a penguin. <laughs> but it it, 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 it seemed it seemed it seemed because he's a little guy too. So was Bobby Sobe. They were yeah. they weren't big goaltenders like there are today. And even Mike Palmatier, Palmy wasn't a big yeah. goalie either. But what they were were very yeah. quick, agile, reflex reflex goaltenders. And I, I always said to Donnie, I said, Penguin, I said, you know, I think those feet help you make those saves down low a little better because your feet are curled in towards each other. <laughs> he used to laugh. But, no, they won the Vesna for us the one year, Jeff, and uh, yep. they were awesome. Yep. Bob Sove, and, and, and uh, they had great careers here. They really did. You know, and, and you always had, like, just such a tremendous shot. I mean, you scored 50 goals a couple of times. The one year I can recall when you scored 56. Um, where did the shot come from, Danny? Like, was that something? Like, now players spend, you know, the full off season working on their shot, working on different grips, right. like, all different kinds of, like, everyone does it now. It seemed almost as if yours was just natural. Like, the puck was on the stick and then it was off. Like, and it's like, did Danny Gare even, like, you know, did, did he even, like, snap his wrists on that one? Did they even move? The puck just flew off your stick where did that come from well it's funny you say that because we're going to talk a little bit about my synthetic ice uh, company in a bit yep. here but it was it goes back when i was about 11 or 12 years old back in british columbia and nelson and my dad was the athletic director at the university of notre dame there and dad played hockey and <clears throat> i was a little guy and he mm-hmm. said to me one time he said if you want to get better you know, you have to have an asset. You have to shoot pucks, you know, two, three hundred pucks a day. You have to work out on, on you know, upper body weight lifting and being stronger. And you had to learn how to box. So uh, all those three things were what really helped me, for, you know, uh, along with skating and practicing. And But I had it underneath my mm-hmm. sun deck in Nelson. We Dad brought an old archery net because he taught archery. And it was... And I put uh, a piece of plywood, and I used to get from the national ski team because they train there also. I used to clean their old shack up. I'd take some of their ski wax and I'd put it on the on the plywood and just keep coating it, coating it, so I had that same glide, which was similar to ice on the plywood. And then I just have a big bucket oh, of yeah. bucks and I yeah, I just fired them in the net before I went to school. After I went to school, I used to give my brother a nickel to pick them up and put them back in. And- <laughs> <laughs> and fill them up for me, and, and off I went. So, yeah, I shot lots of pucks. So, really, after a while, it's a repetition, repetition, repetition. And I used to tell kids that yeah. in hockey school when I thought is it's all about practice, 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 you know. So, so let, let me guess, because I, I want to transition this, to, as, as you mentioned, to your synthetic ice company. Was that in the back right. of your mind something that you always had? Like, if we could fashion this where players could skate on right. it. And it would simu- right. and it would simulate actual ice. Like was that like? Did you always have that in the back of your mind? Starting from those days, we really. you know wax that wax down the board and shoot. No, 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 not until after when I when I retired from broadcasting. I think it was what ten years ago, and I I, I mm-hmm. met a gentleman in Florida who is uh, my partner now, and he his name's Mike McGraw, and he, you know, he's been in the sports servicing business for over forty years. And he said, you know, he found this uh, ice in Norway, the synthetic ice. He was at a convention. And, and and I started thinking about it and thinking about it. And I said, well, you know, that's something we should look into. And then um, it, was, it was weird because at the time, that's when I started thinking about me shooting off, you know, 
this, this platform with, uh, you know, um, just sneakers on. But in order to get the mechanics uh-huh. that you need to, to get better in, in skating, you need to have skates on, you know, and shooting. Same thing, inside, outside mm-hmm. edges, you know, weight transfer, blah, 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 yeah. all of that. You know, so, I mean, we're, we're really excited about um, our, our product. It's a great product. It's all about, to me, because... I, you know, I look at Glide. It's all about Glide, and, and there's a lot of companies out there and competitors that we and I've been doing this, like I said, over ten years, and I've been we've fortunate mm-hmm. to find you know a manufacturer that with the technology um, and the virgin polymer and the way it's manufactured different than others. It gives us it's a harder surface. It's heat plant press, so it's it's really a hard hard surface. So you glide over it, and it's amazing. It's almost ice like mm-hmm. so. Yeah, we're excited about the product. You know, it's interesting because uh, we've seen, um, you know, Sidney Crosby has uh, has this as part of his training. Jonathan Taves, he has uh, our product. As well, he, uh, I, yeah, John John Taves or Crosby? Sydney, Jonathan Taves, Sidney Crosby, they all use can ice. Joe Pavelski, Jonathan Marshall. Um, I, I I I installed in his garage two years ago. Nikita Kucherov. And he said, this is amazing. He said, and he had, you wouldn't believe he had, I took the pucks out of his net. Firstly, there, he had to have 500 pucks in his net. Like, and he, he just thought, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's great. I mean, these players use it for training and off season and during season. So yeah, but go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. (laughs) No, no, no. I I, I was going to say like, do you find like most of your clientele are professional hockey league play, like NHL players, uh, American Hockey League, other pros, or is it more kids that are on their way up and this just becomes part yeah. of their training, both in and out of season? I think it's um, probably most of it. We do some institutional. We've done some rinks also, uh, training centers throughout North America. But, I mean, and the NHL players, as I mentioned, certainly use it, which is great. But most of it is is for the young hockey enthusiasts. Like I wish I had this when I was a kid, type of thing. You know, I mean, I could go downstairs mm-hmm. in my basement, and throw my skates on, and skate 365 days a year, any time of the day. You know, any time of the year. Great for development, uh, stick handling, passing, tight turns, shooting. Yeah. So most of it is probably residential, but. We do do like some institutional and also you know other NHL. We've got, like I said NHL, AHL players, women's hockey, uh, figure skaters. So yeah, it's it's really um, hmm. a, a product that I think is is super for um, developing skills. Can-ice.com is, uh, is Danny Gare's company. Can-ice, if you're curious, dot com uh, is a company. that yeah. I saw the rink that you built for Ron uh, McLean for Scotiabank Hockey Day in Canada. That looks fantastic. Yeah. Uh, very much looking yeah. forward to it. Uh, it's a hockey day in Canada. Um, uh, w- w- one final question for you. Uh, of all the, the Buffalo Sabres, because that was such a colorful team. Like I, I I know I'm going back to the Sabres here, but that's my vintage. Like I grew up watching your that's team. Okay. I just loved that, uh, that version of the Buffalo Sabres. And one of the guys that I was always fascinated by was Jerry King Kong Korab. Korab oh, to yeah. me, I you followed the career everywhere. Do you have a good story, uh, much like you had with Don Edwards, about Jerry Korab, King Kong? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Kong, you know, Kong was a, a dynamic player. I mean, he, um, I remember the game he played against the Soviet Wings where we beat him, I think, 12 to 6. And he checked yep, Yakishev, Alexander Yakishev, a hundred times, it seemed. Like, every time he hit him behind the, the old odd, the boards would sway back and forth. The glass would move. But um, he was a big, strong guy uh, that could shoot the puck very well. And uh, he, that's and that was a great nickname for him, King Kong. But he always wore these big furs whenever he was in Buffalo. And you probably could use them nowadays yes. with the way the weather has been. But... No, good guy. Yeah. I get to see him in the. In the I, I spend my winters in Florida and Tampa, and he's not far from there. And I play some golf with him, and he, and he looks oh, great wow. and doing well. So, yeah, that's. You know, mentioning the. I've only got about sixty seconds for this. I hope we can go quick. I'm gonna try to. Th- I'm gonna throw a dart here. I hope it lands. Were you on that Western League junior team that played I against was. the Moscow Selects? 
Were you on that team? Yeah, we we lost in we lost in Vancouver and then beat them in Edmonton. Uh, the last game in our line, Rogers, Holland, and Gare, we scored uh, six goals, I think, and we brought in Jerry Cheever, wow. so Bill Hunter. But it yes. was it was quite it was quite an event and quite a in the old gardens in Edmonton. It was amazing. But uh, Jeff just wanted to thank you for having me on, and, and um, we're proud to be a oh, part of uh, this this big day in hockey day in Canada with our ice. And I'm looking forward to seeing everybody out there. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, my guest has been yeah. Andy Gare uh, in the Buffalo Sabres Hall of Fame, British Columbia Sports Hall of Fame as well. Uh, partner with Can Ice, uh, Synthetic Ice. Uh, that's the ice that Ron will be standing on Saturday for Scotiabank Hockey Day in Canada. Danny, thanks as always for stopping by. It's, it's been a real pleasure catching up again. Always great to talk to you, Jeff. Take care, man. Be good. Uh, the great Danny Gare. Man, could that guy shoot 56 goals once upon a time in the NHL. Uh, with just a flick of the wrist, Matt Marchese, a flick of the wrist, and uh, the red light goes off, and or goes on, rather, and Danny Gare raises his arms. We saw that often uh, from about 74 to 85 would have been Danny Gare's uh, vintage in the NHL. Anyway, Matty Marchese, how are you? I'm good, man. Uh, my dad used to tell me a lot about Danny Gare. I used to watch him a lot uh you know, much like yourself, getting a, a Buffalo Sabres games and he, Leaf games uh, a long time ago. Just he, he honestly, like Danny is five ten, maybe five nine, but like just like a buzzsaw. And you always talk about oh, players would have been great in the game today. Danny could skate. Danny could shoot. Danny wasn't shy. Danny would take on all comers. If a great one with Gary Howitt. I remember watching him go after Tory Robertson of Hartford when he was playing in Detroit. Like that guy was an honest, honest hockey player. I got, I got all day for Danny Gare, and I, as you can tell, love talking about that vintage Buffalo Sabres team. Anyway, uh, time now for line change presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sports book. Bet local, Matt Marchese. What are you thinking tonight? Eight games uh, on the go. I'm looking out west. It's the Maple Leafs at the Oilers. The puck line is Oilers minus one and a half. We know Edmonton is riding a 10-game winning streak. We talked about this yesterday on the show about the Oilers winning close games. The total has gone yeah. under in four of the last five games for the Oilers. Very rare occurrence for the Edmonton Oilers, especially this year. Uh, Toronto has won mm. twenty of the last 23 of the last 30 matchups. Against the Oilers, Toronto has won six of their last seven against the Western Conference. You know, it's interesting, this Maple Leafs team, uh, we saw them squander it against the Tret Red Wings, squander it against the Colorado Avalanche, drop one to the Islanders previous, and now they go out on this road trip, which looks like the Valley of Death. <laughs> right now, they'll play the Oilers tonight, and they'll play Calgary, who's playing some much better hockey. Um, Seattle Kraken as well. Like, this is... This is going to be a tough stretch here for the, for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and they kick it off against a team that's certainly highlighted uh, by Connor McDavid and Leon Draisaitl, but also having fantastic seasons. Zach Hyman has had a tremendous year so far for the Edmonton Oilers, as has Ryan Nugent Hopkins, and it's great to see a very healthy, healthy Matthias Ekholm. But yeah, kicking off the road trip here, Edmonton, then Calgary, Vancouver, at home, Vancouver, man, they're so good. And then the Seattle Kraken. And then they come back home, face off against the Winnipeg Jets. Tough slog for the Leafs coming up. That has been Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sports book, Bet Local. Brian Lawton, tour around the NHL next. Keep it here. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Welcome to Hour 2. I want to thank Danny Gare for stopping by to finish up Hour number 1 there. You know, Hockey Day in Canada, um, those were some of my favorite events to ever work. Stratford, going to the William Allman Arena. Chris Pronger played there. Eddie Olchak. I mean, thousands of people that played at the William Allman uh, one of the oldest rinks in uh, in, in Canada. Uh, I think it's the William Allman Arena and Galt 
arena who lay claim to the two two oldest rinks or un, uninterrupted streaks uh, of hockey every year. Someone is going to correct me on that if I'm wrong. I, I probably am, but I've have that in my head nonetheless. Um, Stratford was a was a, a, a real thrill for me. Whitehorse was a great one. Um, but my first one was Winkler, uh, Manitoba. Didn't know much about Winkler. Uh, I knew a little bit about uh, Ed Belfour and his family, and we got to watch his kid play uh, in a Winkler Flyers game, and that was a lot of fun. And that was, no joke, the coldest I have ever been in my life. Winkler, Manitoba, which is an hour away from Winnipeg, and much to the chagrin of our entire staff, this is back when I was working at CBC, much to the chagrin of our entire staff, Winkler's a dry town. And it's a it's a it's it's a, a two city town. There's Winkler and Morden. Right on the right on the border, there's an enormous bar <laughs> there, which is uh pretty much full uh, around the clock because anyone from Winkler is going there when they're thirsty. Uh, anyhow, Hockey Day in Canada this year from Victoria, BC. Uh, I'm headed there tomorrow morning. We'll be doing a live podcast, Elliot and I, on Thursday afternoon at Wicked Hall. Uh, very much looking forward to that. And then I'll be back here on the program for Friday. I'll grab the red eye uh, so I can do the show then. Um, the show itself, uh, Saturday, watch it on Sportsnet with your host once again, as always. Uh, the master of ceremonies, no one does it like he can, Ron McLean. And I read you the list of people that are going to be there um, from our crew. Uh, it's going to be, you know, Ron and David Amber and Bieksa and Rudy and Bots. Uh, Lanny McDonald will be there, Darcy Tucker, Cassie Campbell Pascal, uh, Wendell Clark, Andrew Ferentz. Love Andrew Ferentz. Nathan Lafayette, Crossbar, Kirk McLean as well. So very much look forward to Saturday and Scotiabank's Hockey Day in Canada. In the meantime, pleased to be joined now uh, by Brian Lawton from the uh, NHL Network, former, former general manager, former agent, former player as well. Um, now broadcaster, certainly lots. Uh, before we get going here, of all the jobs that you've had in hockey, which one was your favorite? Because you've kind of done all of it here, bud. Um. Okay, I've been asked this before, so I have, I wouldn't say a stock answer for you, Jeff, because I'd never do that. <laughs> but I do have a very, very uh, succinct answer, and that is I loved playing the most. I'll be just yeah. completely transparent. There's nothing like being a professional hockey player. Um, it's just an enjoyable job. And as most people can imagine, it's something you've been doing all your life. And then you get a chance to do this and people actually pay you money to do what you love. Yeah. There's there's a lot of hardness that comes with it, but when it's all said and done, it is a very gratifying, satisfying ordeal to not only be the individual player, to, to be on a team and to be in a your own little community or society, so to speak, where mm -hmm. you have to try your things out. And I always found that very interesting. The second most enjoyable thing by far was being a general manager trying to put together the guts of what goes into being a part of a winning hockey team, not necessarily participating mm -hmm. in the actual game, having to remove yourself a little bit from that. But I really, really enjoyed that. And then, you know, from there, I, I loved being in the media. I loved being an agent. I became an agent originally for two very distinct purposes. The first was to learn the business aspect of hockey after having spent essentially my adult life up to that point as a hockey player. And the second was I felt that I generally had something to give back. There were not a lot of agents back then. There was a lot of what I would call sketchy information back then. And I really felt like I could help. <laughs> yes. So it's very simple. Those, uh, that's how I, I always yeah. looked at things. That's how I feel about it. That uh, that completely makes sense, and no offense, but I was expecting you to say player because there's nothing like it. You know, it, it's interesting, Brian. I was talking to uh, Terry Ryan yesterday, and you know, Terry at the age of 47 plays a game with the Newfoundland Growlers. Um, you know, first professional game and I think it was 19 years for Terry Ryan and afterwards he talked about how you know he's 47 years old but he doesn't feel 47 when he's playing you know and uh, I think that's uh, I think that's that's common like when you get out there on the ice now I'm sure you don't feel your age no one listening or watching feels their age when they play um, the other thing that I wanted to that I want to ask you about is you know you mentioned I want I'll, we'll get to we'll get to the games here in a second some of the issues around the NHL but you mentioned um, you know you love of being a general manager from your experience as a GM, 
what are some of the things, or maybe even just one, if you want to isolate one, what are some of the things that people don't understand or are even aware of when it comes to being a GM that, that, that occupies a lot of your time when you're running a hockey team? Going into being a general manager, I felt great about my comprehension of all things that was going on in hockey. And when you become a general manager, you end up spending so much more time on just your team that that is certainly difficult. When you combine that with the fact, you know, my personal experience was taking over a team that was dead last in the NHL, the Tampa Bay Lightning, 2008. Yeah. Uh, I had the first pick when I was hired. Ended up being St Steven Stamkos, our second pick the following year was Hedman. I think people understand that, but everything moves so slow. When you kind of have seen this movie, you believe how it's going to turn yeah. out, but it's just painful to get there, Jeff. You know, it's, we could look mm -hmm. now and I, I, I just know it felt really crystal clear to me when I was in Tampa that patience was needed. And unfortunately, it's like mm -hmm. turning the Titanic in terms of getting the results. Um, so those are things that really jumped out at me. Uh, other than that, a lot of the things that you need to do to manage a hockey team, once you understand the business aspect of it, the CBA, things that I had spent 14, 15 years working on, to be honest with you, before I became a general manager, it wasn't just, oh, you were a player, therefore you could do it. I started... A, Octagon Hockey that lives on today as a very well-known agency in the sports world. I'm very proud of that. I built it. We built it, really, with an eye for building something that would last. And that happens to line up with the goal of what you're trying to do with a hockey team. So a lot went into mm -hmm. everything that happened for me before that time. I traveled the world, uh, felt like 40 times over in search of hockey players when I was an agent. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, uh, those are very fulfilling, enjoyable experiences. When you love the work you're doing, it doesn't matter how much money you make. And I've always felt like that. I've always felt blessed to be involved in hockey. I have been involved in a lot of different things, but I, I've enjoyed it every step of the way. I, I love that answer. And let me ask one follow-up, and then we'll get on to the games and, and the issues in the NHL right now lots. Um, you mentioned picking second overall. The Islanders take John Tavares first, and your Tampa Bay Lightning take Victor Hedman second. Matt Deshane goes third. Um, if you would have had the first pick that year, would you still have taken Victor Hedman? <laughs> no one has ever asked me this question. And this is a very, it's not a funny story. It's a serious story. The first thing you should know is back then, I believe Pittsburgh was in the finals. The top three prospects that you just mentioned, Tavares, Hedman, yep. and Duchesne, were all, you know, invited, as we still see today, to come to the finals, watch a game, do an interview. I had prearranged yep. at that time for all three kids to come from Pittsburgh down to Tampa. Because, you know, we, we had not made a final decision. Our scouting staff had, they had presented a final list to me at that time. And it was late in the game. So we felt confident it was Tavares, Duchesne, Hedman. I was, we went to the lottery. Somebody had said to me, you don't seem very nervous about the lottery, Brian. At that time, we could only... Um, move back. It was most likely that we would stay where we were. We could only move back one spot, stay where we were, and a small chance to move forward. I wasn't too worked up about it. I felt really confident that we would pick second. And the answer to your question is, is that we would have drafted Victor Hedman second. All right. So excuse me, we would have drafted Victor Hedman first overall. I was happy when yeah. we stayed second because I didn't, I already had to overrule the staff on our list because our final list was Tavares one, Duchesne two, and Hedman three. But at the start of the year, when I took that job, I said, look, you guys are going to, you guys are going to be out there pounding the pavement. All of our staff, Jim Hammett was in charge of it. And we are going to listen to what you say, unless somehow 
we have a pick that's essentially, and I don't remember if I said top five or top eight. If it comes down to that, mm-hmm. then as a general manager, it's my responsibility to get on the road, make sure I see who these top players are, and I may have an opinion that overrules you. But for the most part, I will go with what you guys come up with. I went to all the meetings, I participated it. It just so happened in the end, and I always had a slant towards this because I believe you build your team from the blue line in both directions. That's unique to me. I'm, there's other people that agree with me, but most people will say, well, you get strength down the middle and you build it that way, or you get a great goaltender and you build it that way. But my view, having been a forward, which, which makes no sense, having been a forward, is that <laughs> that's teams that I played on in my experience were the teams where we had a blue line that could control the game. So that was always very important to me. And uh, I once got asked by the Bruins to outline how I thought we should build a team. And I actually wrote this out in a very long presentation for Harry Sinden. Mm-hmm. He's doing the interviewing at that time. And he said, you know, Brian, I don't hear that a lot, but I don't disagree with you. Maybe he was being kind. I don't know. But that's how I looked at things. I didn't get that job, so maybe I should take something from that. But in the end, that is how I looked at it. Uh, we had some forwards already in Tampa. There's always some consideration for what you have going on. But um, I had I, I had all three players together as I started this story with. I got a chance to see them interact, a chance to weigh in on their character, a chance to maybe envision how they would how they would act when they came into a locker room. To be fair to all three of the players at that time, John Tavares was a TSN superstar bar none by that time. The yeah. world knew who John was. He was comfortable with who he was, and I felt great about his character. Victor Hedman was playing in the Swedish Elite League. Matthias Tamander, a longtime veteran from the National Hockey League, was his partner, and he was equivalent to what a young pro player was. And then Matt Duchesne, who's from Halliburton, his family ran a real estate agency up there, um, was pretty wide-eyed about it. And I thought that it may just, and Matt was Matt's had a tremendous career. He's a tremendous player. He was a better player than Victor Hedman impact-wise his first year. I knew that that was potentially going to happen. We weren't drafting for the first year. We were drafting for the next 10 years. That's how we were looking at it. And we were looking at Victor Hedman where if he was a miss, he would be at Mm. least somewhat equivalent to Jay Bomeister. And I used that example at the time. Um, It all worked out good for Tampa. Um, nobody's ever come to me and said, what a stupid decision, Brian. The scouting staff was very (laughs) upset. I I feel like I was very transparent early on as to how it could play out. That's Mm -hmm. the way it played out. Um, The ownership, I had to inform the ownership, which I did before the staff to make sure that they were (laughs) comfortable with it and going to back me and Warren Coolis looked me and said, Brian, we will back. We hired you to make these types of decisions. Just know that it's on you though, if you go this route. And I said, that's fine. I understand why I was hired. I accepted that responsibility and I have no problem with it. That's outstanding. Um, so much for the stereotype of all forwards hating defensemen. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, you know, forwards with the insults. Oh, defensemen are just dumb forwards. Oh, you're drafting a defenseman. Bring the crayons. Like, I, it's it's kind of refreshing to hear a forward talk so positively about a defenseman. So let's stay on that tip here a little bit then. As you look around the NHL and you look at blue lines, there's been uh, a number that jump out. Uh, Quinn Hughes, certainly. Kale McCarr is an obvious one. Adam Fox. Um, as far as blue liners go in the NHL, who's stand- Brock Faber in Minnesota, fantastic. Who's who's standing out? Who's jumping out for you these days? It's interesting you throw Brock in there because this year there has been no defenseman that has shocked me more than his play. And I go to games in all the arenas. I live in Minnesota. I was in Detroit last week for the Edmonton game. I, I still travel around a fair amount to see games. I do see Brock the most. But it's very, very rare, and this will sound funny, that a player moves up from whatever league they're playing in, and they're a better player at this level than they were at the previous level, because that is how I would describe Brock Favor. 
he's a better player for the Minnesota Wild than he was for the Minnesota. <laughs> I don't know if he's just that nice a guy. I, I, I can't really figure it out, but he has shocked the heck out of me at the level he's been able to play. It's not just the minutes per night. Everybody can see that. It's just that yeah. he, offensively, he didn't contribute enormously. He wasn't even the leading defenseman on the Gophers his last year in points. Um, mm-hmm. But he's just able to do everything. He's just a little bit bigger than you think. He's a lot stronger than you think. So he's a little bit reminiscent of a Ryan Suter, who's had an incredible career. Mm. And uh, he's just a newer, right-handed, younger version of that, in my opinion. I think he has the potential to be that type of a great player, like a Suits has been. So he has shocked me the most. Um, Quinn Hughes is remarkable. Uh, you know, the, the the players you're naming are players that you don't want to miss play, to be honest with mm-hmm. you, because Quinn Hughes is absolutely worth it. His skating has always been great. How he's been able to utilize it in his game has taken him to the next level. And Kale McCarr, he's got the accolades that he deserves already. Uh, but th- these guys mm-hmm. are next level. Brock Favor, for sure, will be on the next U.S. World Cup team. There's just no doubt about that. And the U.S. has some really strong D. If you just take two minutes and think about, oh, yeah. you know, Jim Wierenski and Slavin and all the guys, uh, Shea, that they have that are potentials, Brock Faber will be in that mix and he will be a meaningful player. So I'm super bullish on him. But uh, I love the skill set that these guys are coming into the league with because the things you were saying, Jeff, about complaining about, oh, they just throw it off the glass, it's in my feet. We can't make a play. That is not the case. It's not the case with the kids today. And and I say that just, yeah. and it, it's unusual to me because it's not just, you know, them working on their skills. It's also a change in mindset of coaches. I look at the job Paul Coffey's doing in Edmonton, comes in, hmm. you know, after they've made some change as a new coach. And I love Dave Manson. I played against Dave Manson. I have a ton of respect for him. But there's just more emphasis on making plays back there. And you see that. And I think that's part of the reason why Edmonton's taken a big step forward. Their D has played much better. You mentioned um, Team USA a second ago in the uh, in the next World Cup, and I think like I, I think that when you just look at it on paper, and I think everyone's down there. Okay, what's Sweden going to look like? Finland going to look like? Canada going to look like? If we get to the United States, like it's a it's it's a shot of terror towards everybody and you know what we're seeing right now from the u.s uh dominant at the u20 the world junior hockey championships the u18 women uh run the table in in that tournament and you're seeing this i don't want to say emerging powerhouse because the united states has always you know uh, iced really good teams uh at times those teams have won on on the biggest stages but right now like there seems to be this like consistent pipeline both in the men and women's game of quality athlete, quality team, and it's almost as if it, it feels like to me, Brian, I'm curious if it feels like this to you, that right now what we're seeing is the United States poised to really make a significant claim of hockey supremacy internationally. Does it feel that way to you? On paper, it's undeniable, Jeff. They, they'd have to, they have to prove that as a group. But on paper right now, I mean, look at the goaltenders they have. I mean, you got Hellebuck, you got Demko, you got Ottinger. Like, who wouldn't want these guys as their goalies? Like, there's always been some flaw or weakness for the U.S. You know, and I'm a hockey player today essentially because of what the kids, because they were kids at the time, did when I was 14 years old, and that was the 1980 U.S. Olympic team. That, like, was the first time in my life I said, huh, kid growing up in Rhode Island playing high school hockey, I might be able to be a pro. Look at what these kids done. Every year that's continued to roll forward, but there's been flaws. I played in that 84 Canada Cup. I played in that 87 Canada Cup. And we always did good, but we were always undermanned. We didn't have enough good players at that time. Um, It's gotten better and better and better. And this is the highest level I've ever seen USA hockey at bar none. There's been a lot of changes that have gone in along the way over time to getting there. But I think on paper, and I want to be very clear about that on paper, because you still have to prove that you can win. Mm -hmm. And it's for me ever (laughs) not to have Canada ranked first in that competition because of their history, because of what they've done. But on paper, 
the USA has to feel as good as they ever have. They have strength down the middle. They can field guys down the middle. You can start with Matthews and Eichel. Oh, yeah. and, and they can, you know, different styles of players' choices. Canada always had choices for their teams. The U.S. has never really had choices. Now they finally do, whether it's in goal, whether it's down the middle, whether it's blue line, you name it. They got it. They got to prove it, though. Of the uh, now that that is just now just sent like you know shivers up every Canadian hockey fan's spine. Um, when you look at the top teams in the NHL right now, um, it doesn't seem as if there's one team that is trying to or has the ability to really distinguish themselves from the pack. Now we saw the Boston Bruins last year. Lots have a season for the ages. Um, yep. and I was wondering with Elliot in the first hour if all those moves at deadline did something to the chemistry of that team. Like The default is never, and you've been a manager, you know the temptation, I'm going to bring in as much good players at deadline here and try to help my team, and here comes Orloff, and here comes Bertuzzi, and here comes Hathaway, etc., and something changes within the room, and I can't help but thinking that that, those moves, you know, help hasten along, you know, the first round exit of the Boston Bruins. Nonetheless, no one really seems to have distinguished themselves from the pack. There's, I don't know, take your pick, six, eight, maybe 10 teams that you can look at and say, this team has a shot at winning the Stanley Cup. Uh, how many are there for you? Like, as, as you look here on, you know, January 16th, you know, how many teams look to you, Brian, like legitimate Stanley Cup contenders? My first thought is that there is no clear-cut team like maybe we did see last year, okay? But yeah. from a macro standpoint, when you look at the NHL, regardless of what anybody says, this is not basketball. There isn't a team that has a 40% chance of winning the Stanley <laughs> Cup. Nobody does right now. The salary cap has definitely yeah. spread out the team. It's definitely created some flaws as we wait for the rest of the world to... There's plenty of NHL-level hockey players... Um, but it's it's always a challenge to fill out with star players. I feel like the NHL is at a precipice now for being able to do that. But when you yeah. have a salary cap era, it's tough because, as we've seen with every team, Tampa the latest, you're forced to remove players, just like Chicago was, just like Pittsburgh has been to some degree, like L.A. did yep. as well. So that's always kind of bringing everybody tighter together. Right now, I don't see any team that I would say has a more than a 16% chance to win the cup. I just don't. What you're saying is 100%. So how many are legitimate, just by the math, how many are legitimate candidates to win the cup that are at least more than 12%, less than five or six teams maximum? That's just the way it is. And it's all yeah. over the map. You know, we saw Edmonton be horrific for longer than anybody would have imagined a team that you know quite frankly i do analytics every year myself i have my own metrics i use as do a lot of people and they're a top five team for me they were mm -hmm. so far off that mark i understand math i understand regression to the mean it happens but even their case went on a little bit longer than i thought and now of course they're hotter than i thought they would get this year that just <laughs> is the result of how close everybody is. Because on any given night, Scotty Bowman, when I was in Tampa, we were sitting up top one day. It was my first year. Scotty used to come to all the games because he lived down there. He turns yep. to me one day. We weren't, we weren't playing very well. Our team wasn't very good. And he says, don't worry, Brian. Even a bad team in the NHL wins at least one out of every three games. Nobody had ever <laughs> said this. <laughs> and I was kind of like, what? I'm not sure what you're saying right now, but I, I appreciate it. I think, but he was totally right. <laughs> if, you, if you look at history, it's true. It just is. Yeah. The San Jose Sharks, they couldn't win a game to save their lives at the start of the year. Well, guess what? They've regressed closer yeah. to that mean, not necessarily there. It was just a good observation. I really appreciated that moment, even though I didn't know what to make of it at that time. And, um, I just think that's the reality of the league. Mm -hmm. I really do. Uh, Scotty's a treasure.
Scotty's a treasure. Absolutely. Um, listen, uh, we're up against the clock. Uh, lots, as always. Uh, a pleasure. Continued success. Uh, and listen, thanks for the trip down memory lane as well. I've, I've always wanted to ask you that question about Victor Hedman in that draft. If you would have had first, uh, would you have taken the big defenseman or the uh, the center from Oakville? Um, Brian, always a pleasure, my good Definitely man. You be well. Uh, continued decision. success, and we'll check soon. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, pal. The great Brian Lawton, uh, who's done it all around the NHL, whether it's broadcasting, whether it's managing, and as he points out, uh, still the number one, if he could do all of it again, play and play as long as you can. Uh, Bobby Holik's going to stop by here in a couple of moments, uh, talk to a few things uh, with Bobby about. He's a former uh, head coach of the Israeli national hockey team as well. We'll talk plenty about um, the IIHF's unfortunate decision um, essentially to temporarily ban or remove Israeli hockey teams from international world competitions, uh, which would include men, which would include women. Like, I know that the Israeli team doesn't play at the top tier, uh, but nonetheless, this is, you know, these events are really important for the program. We think of the U-20s as well. Uh, the IIHF seems to have at least softened on things like the World Championships at the men's and the women's side as well, uh, but seem pretty determined about the, uh, the U-20. Bobby has uh, a very intimate knowledge of Israeli hockey after having coached there for, uh, for a number of years. Um, I spent some time in Matula back in 2010. Uh, first of all, the country's beautiful, the people are wonderful, and the hockey culture, and even since then, has been significantly growing. You know, Roger Nilsson used to be uh, a regular uh, in Matula at the Canada Centre, uh, where I uh, trained players along with my buddy Mike Majeka. Um, you know, Jean Beliveau uh, went at least a couple of times as well. Um, to, to northern Israel to, to help train at this uh, wonderful facility they have there. Um, so this is a really unfortunate decision. The NHL has weighed in on it as well. Uh, people from a lot of different corners have weighed in on this decision um, to voice how upset they are about it. Um, and we'll get Bobby Holik's feelings uh, in a couple of moments. You know, he had uh, Larry Brooks wrote about it on the weekend, and you can hear it in Bobby Holik's voice himself. Uh, with his experiences coaching the Israeli uh, national team and the IIHF's unfortunate decision to pause Israeli hockey activities internationally. Uh, former NHLer Bobby Holik stops by in a couple of moments. We should also, and I will always want to draw people's attention to, to good work, to, to good books that they should be reading uh, about hockey. I'm halfway through this one. It's called Freedom to Win, uh, a Cold War story of the courageous hockey team that fought the Soviets for the soul of its people and Olympic gold. Ethan Shiner is the author on this one, and a lot of it is about, well, certainly the 1968 World Championships, uh, Czechoslovakia versus uh, the Soviet Union, two games that they had to win, the most passionate games, I think, that have ever been played in the history of hockey, and a lot of it, a lot of it revolves around the Holik family. So we'll spend some time talking about this book as well uh, with Bobby Holik, who joins me in moments across the Sportsnet Radio Network, Sportsnet 360, and wherever you get your podcasts. Back in a moment with Bobby. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Glad to have you aboard today. Uh, pleased to welcome to the program. He is a uh, Stanley Cup champion a couple of times. Uh, he is a former NHLer, former national team coach uh, for Team Israel as well. This all on the heels of an unfortunate decision by the IIHF. Uh, to suspend play internationally for teams from Israel at the World Championship level. That is men, that is women, uh, that is U-20, etc. He is Bobby Holik, and he joins me now. Bobby, good to hear your voice again. How are you, my friend? I'm, I'm really good, um, except some obviously some issues, but how are you? Uh, I've been talking to our mutual friend quite a bit, so he says that you've been very supportive of his <laughs> and, and also asking about how, yes. he's, how he's doing, how his family so. Yeah, we, we do have a great yes. mutual friend who lives in Israel nowadays. Yes, that is uh, that is Mike Majeka, who you're speaking of. So Mike and I originally 
this was with uh, you know uh, Sherry Basson and Steve Simmons back in 2010 uh, invited us to uh, to teach hockey camps in in northern Israel in Matula. Uh, on, on essentially on the border of the Canadian Center, and uh, I stayed for a while. Uh, Mike stayed, and he's staying there forever. And uh, he met a met a girl and fell in love, and they have a beautiful family. And we all know what's happening internationally right now uh, with Israel. And you know, the one of the reasons that you know I wanted to have this this conversation with you on the air, Bobby, was I know you're quite passionate about this, and you can describe why. Um, the decision of the IIHF to suspend Israeli hockey um, uh, hockey um, activities internationally is one that has been um, met with surprise, um, to be kind. Uh, you have a background uh, with uh, Israeli hockey as well, a former national team coach as well. Um, what did you do when you first heard this news from the IIHF? I immediately tried to reach out to people in the, in the hockey media because I found it unacceptable, and there's only one reason why it happened, is because people take any opportunity they can, certain people, certain organizations, certain institutions, certain countries, to either boycott or sanction either the Jews or Israel as a state, because it makes it easy when they say, oh, we are concerned for our security of the tournament or other teams, who can we blame? Well, history tells us it's very easy to, uh, to blame Israel or the Jews, Jews as people. So that was, that was my reaction immediately. And I said, I have to speak out, not only because I'm passionate about people there, I'm passionate about the state of Israel, land of Israel, but also I did, I did those tournaments. I coached in Israel. I, I spent a couple summers uh, teaching in hockey school like you and Mike. And, but they, uh, my, my, kind of, uh, my role extended into that I coached the U18s, U20s, and men's on a few different tournaments. And I learned how de- determined, how committed these, especially the young players between 16 to 18, 19 years old, they were to represent their country. L- listen, the talent's not uh, the level of, you know, Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Sweden, Canada. Not there, but their determination, mm-hmm. their heart, their desire to show the world that they, they are who they are and what they are, which is great people and great athletes. Uh, and then when it gets taken away just because somebody wants to be more comfortable, but to me it's a result of just wider anti-Semitism around the world. Do you think that, uh, I mean, there, there is being pressure put on. We saw the NHL put out a statement as well. Um, uh, I don't think to anybody's surprise. Um, I think everybody is uh, concerned about this decision. Uh, I think you know, most people are certainly concerned about this decision uh, and the implications of it. Um, do you think that this is, that the, the IIHF uh, eventually here, has a sober second thought uh, on what this means uh, for Israeli hockey, for those teams, for those specifically those those younger people um, that, as you mentioned, aren't playing at the you know the the, the top level of, of hockey internationally. But as we talk about countries growing their hockey programs, these events are crucial. These events are important. Do you think or have any indication that the IIHF may may soften their decision here at least? I don't. I don't think so. I hope so. Unfortunately, hope is not enough. Sometimes I, I hope there's going to be enough pressure. From, and I'm, I'm not looking at. This, we're not talking about politics here. We talk about young young men and women uh, who are trying to play internationally because that's the only way to measure how far they've come, how how hard they've worked, and they, their opportunities are right. taken away because of whatever is out there. So I'm 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 trying to. I wouldn't get involved with it if it wasn't for hockey and if it wasn't for the same team, same tournaments that I participated uh, with, the, with the team Israel when it was U18 or U20s. And, you know, to me, being so close to it and still knowing people who are involved with the program there, it just, it just sort of rocked my, rocked my world and I had to do something about it. And, again, I don't know. I have no idea what IHF is going to do, whether they're going to soften this stand, if they're going to become reasonable. I hope they are, they are, but the only way they're going to do it is if there's some kind of pressure put on them. 
And, you know, NHL did what they had to do because I firmly believe we all, we all in the Western world have an opinion on what's going on uh, almost on the other side of the world. But most people, most of us, maybe not most of us, but most people keep that to themselves. Unfortunately, we need to hear Mm -hmm. the support. We need to hear their voice of reason. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing because it's extremely close to my heart. I told your producer that being with those teams, being with those kids, traveling around the world in fairly unsecure environment, but uh, we never felt that way. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And I, I wish to get back there. I hope that somebody in the program or any level, whether it's a club level, whether it's a, you know international level, I would love to participate and volunteer and help them again because it meant so much to me. Did you, uh, I want to pick up on that, Bobby, because you, you mentioned you know, safety concerns or feeling comfortable. Did you ever in any of these events um, with the Israeli team ever feel as if you weren't safe going somewhere? No, we, we, I did not. I did not. I don't think the boys and, or the, the players did. I don't think the, uh, the leadership of the team maybe did. Nobody did because there was instances, again, I, I, I no details. There's the state provides security for uh, Israeli athletes. Uh, and also in, in certain countries we went, they were so welcoming and so, so helpful in providing extra, extra, extra security. So the, so the boys could play hockey, so they could play games because they that's mm-hmm. you know there's great people around the world and 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 some of us we just want them to have opportunities to play the sport and show and the sport brings people together. It could be it could be competitive tournament, competitive game, you know a lot of animosity. But when it's over, as you know, you you're a hockey guy, athlete athlete and sport guy all your life. It brings people together. And again, we're denying yeah. the opportunity to these young athletes to show they're just boys. They're 16, 17, 18 year old. Most of them will end up in the Israeli Defense Force serving their country in another few months or years. And, and this is the yeah. last opportunity. So it, it's, it's, again, I'm, I think you can tell from my voice, from my, from my, that I'm so passionate about oh, yeah. this. And oh, I yeah. hope when more people speak out, um, or at least voice of reason, there's some reason, reason involved in this, then things will get better. But I also understand that a lot of people don't want to speak out because they don't have the courage or they don't want to, they don't want to quote unquote, rock the boat and put themselves in a position where it might get difficult. I understand that. Mm-hmm. I, I want to speak out and I appreciate you giving me the time. Um, I, I want to get, if you can, I'm speaking with Bobby Holik. Um, I want to get from your point of view uh, a snapshot of Israeli hockey right now. Like when I originally went, when Mike and I went back in, in 2010, you know, there's only a couple of rinks. Like roller hockey was certainly prominent because you could play outdoors. Uh, it wasn't as if there were a lot of rinks in Israel. We spent all of our time at the, uh, the at the Canada Centre in Metula. Um, and there were, you know, young people uh, that we would uh, work with and, and train uh, from Metula, from Drew's Village, uh, everywhere around there. What If you can give us a snapshot of maybe what it's like now, what it's like when you were working with the national team, give us a snapshot of where hockey is in Israel right now. So when I, where there was 2008, I was there seven, no, 2017, 18, 19, and then COVID came. So that kind of disrupted the good flow. We, it, it was growing. I, I still consider it was being grassroots. Uh, one thing that was, there was amazing um, desire to grow the sport, to, to be better and popularity grow, growing. But with the COVID, it was a huge setback because, you know, they were not on most steady grounds as it was. So there was a setback to the program and everything else. And then when it started recovering, when things are going, started going better, now we, they, have, they have war. Actually, something worse than COVID that people didn't think at the time. And I think in the meantime, between COVID and the most recent war, there was a mo- more of a shift toward the center, which means the Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and surrounding suburbs or cities area where they are building more rings, and, uh, which is it's much better for the majority of the population. It's closer and more convenient. But there's something to be said about mm-hmm. the rink in Metula. It was it was Israel hockey. It was it was like where the hockey started, you know. And unfortunately, it's about I'm thinking four or five blocks from Lebanese border. So that's 
that's out of yes. out of play sort of for a long time until the until the situation improves significantly up north. What what's sad about that that most of our friends and most of the people I work with are from that area and they they don't have the opportunity, they're not safe, they have to evacuate and move. And uh, and again, mm-hmm. I I hope that things will normalize, stabilize eventually, and hockey returns to Matula, where you got your start with Israeli hockey, and where I had some great experiences. Yeah. So, um, but a lot of the hockey is, or I think, majority of it is happening in the center, which is for for many reasons it's good. Unfortunately, it's not as good as for for the friends that I started with. Hmm. And yeah, that was uh, like that was a tremendous and impactful moment in my uh, in my life going to uh, going to Matula, and I I I, I do share those uh, thoughts and and concerns about Matula as well, considering uh, it's right on the border. Like I can I remember we stayed at uh, at Bet Shalom and and having you know dinners and lunches on the patio and seeing military activities right there on the border uh, with Lebanon. Yeah. So we can uh, certainly understand the, uh, the, the issues there. Um, I know this is something you're very much going to stay on. Um, uh, and we'll certainly, uh, follow all your work in trying to get the IIHF to reverse course, uh, on this decision to at least temporarily ban, uh, Israeli teams from competing internationally. Uh, I've got about two or maybe three minutes left here with you, Bobby. And I do want to do uh, more with you and Ethan Shiner on this marvelous book that I've been recommending to everybody uh, on, a, on a different page here. And, and so much of this is about your family, uh, the whole leaks. The book is called Freedom to Win, a Cold War story of the courageous hockey team that fought the Soviets for the soul of its people and Olympic gold. Um, for, I've been recommending this to everyone. I want to have you and Ethan on to talk about it. Um, give us a snapshot of you know your, your family story and and how much this war this book details of not just your family but you know this this moment because I was thinking about you as in Stockholm in August and I was thinking about your family and I was thinking about you because that 1968 World Championship in Stockholm to me the Czechoslovakian uh, Soviet games were the most passionate hockey games. Like, we hear life or death. Like, to the Czechs, it was. Uh, it was very much life or death. The most passionate and maybe most important hockey games that have ever been played. What can you tell us about this book and your family's involvement and your family in it, Freedom to Win? So um, I'll, I'll try to be very objective because it's obviously about my family, but the centerpiece <laughs> of it all is, is a, is a, is a journey of my, my dad's and my uncle's journey and few of their teammates from their very small town in Czech Republic, uh, all the way to the national team. And then they used in the post Soviet occupation, they used the games against the Soviets who were the most dominant team in the world at the time as a, as a stand yeah. because the, the country couldn't fight them. We were defeated. We were occupied. We were beaten down spiritually. Yeah. So the only way to to be able to fight them, not on the battlefield, but on the ice, ice at the ice ring. So they took that advantage, and they basically gave everything. They put everything on the line. Not only their careers, but their lives, because nobody knew what's going to happen if that's that's how they quote unquote treat the Soviets. And um, it's a it, it's a book that's written by a political science professor who had no background in hockey. But, and, it, and it's amazing how he described and researched the hockey times, whether it's my uh, dad, uncle, and their friends growing up, or then the 1998 Olympics in Nagano and all that stuff. And uh, I just can't say enough about the research and the work that Ethan put into it. And it's, if you love hockey, it's a great book. If you know nothing about hockey, it's just as good because the story of people mm. is what really makes it special and again of course everybody say of course he's selling the book is he's in it but i it read <laughs> i know the story i live the story but when i get the when, yeah. when i get the first transcript it read like a thriller because i was so excited or or anxious how it's going to end that's how that's how i thought of the book when i first read it so you know take your word for what it is but go ahead uh, I was just say, what was it? Was it? I was thinking about you. I was reading this. I'm like, was it hard for you to read this? No, it, it read like a like a thriller to me, and I, I knew everything about it because I, huh. I I'm not bragging here, but I helped Ethan with a lot of the 
connections, you know, what he introduced my my mom, for example, and my uncle and all that when he went back to Czech, Czech Republic. So I knew everything about the book, all the stories, but it still read like a thriller because that's how exciting or how riveting, yeah. whether it's the games or some of the guys out there, you know, speaking up against communism, including my dad, what's going to happen? It's uh, that, 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 that was the feeling I got. And I immediately, as soon as I started reading, you know, I was halfway through. That's what I told Ethan, the author, that that's, that he, he didn't write a book about hockey or, or uh, family growing up, but he wrote a thriller. <laughs> He's, it's, it's a, like, honestly, it's, it's one of the most unique hockey books. And again, like, is it a hockey book? Is it not a hockey book? It's one, I'll just, for the purposes of this show, it's one of the most unique hockey books I've ever read. Like, it's one that I know I'm going to go back and, and read multiple times uh, in, in my lifetime, and I'll, I'll have you and Ethan on to talk about it more. But again, the book is called Freedom to Win. Uh, Ethan Shiner is the uh, the author on this one. Um, Bobby, you've always you know done the right thing at uh, at, at all the right turns. We uh, we wish you success, and we hope that the IIHF you know at least reconsiders and has the conversation uh, about the uh, the situation with the uh, the Israeli hockey teams. Thanks as always for stopping by, Bobby. We'll be in touch soon. Thank you very much, Jeff. Much appreciated. There he is, Bobby Holik, um, Stanley Cup champion and uh, former head coach of the Israeli national hockey team uh, on the, uh, the IIHF's decision to suspend the Israeli hockey squads uh, from, international ho- uh, from international hockey competitions. So the men, the women, um, and the young people as well, like the, the teenagers and the U-20s, etc. Um, programs and, and tournaments that are so vital for the development um, of, of hockey, certainly in that country you know bobby is one of the most unique people that i've ever met in hockey um after his career ended we struck up a friendship and um uh, i've you know talked plenty he's been over to the house a, a couple of different times uh, we've been to hockey games together you know one of my one of my favorite stories telling about talking about bobby holik um we were talking about his time with the devils where he won cups and then with the rangers where it really didn't work out and i said how come it worked with the new jersey devils and you so well obviously and how come it didn't work out with the new york rangers and let's not forget like at that time when bobby holik was a free agent i mean the toronto maple leafs tried to bring in holik as well matt sundin was sick of playing against bobby holik he ended up signing uh with the new york rangers and the one thing about bobby is he is very honest about himself and he understands who he is and he said to me this was over dinner before going to a noshua generals game he said look it's like this if bobby holik is your third line center we're going to win the Stanley Cup. But if Bobby Holik is your first-line center, we're not going to win the Stanley Cup. And that's what happened with the New York Rangers and Bobby Holik. And in one of an, another really interesting note uh, about Bobby Holik's career, the first time... Like, think about this for one second. The first time Bobby Holik had a taste of alcohol was when he drank out of the Stanley Cup was champagne out of the cup. That's the first time when New Jersey won that first cup with Bobby Holik. That is the first time that Bobby Holik ever drank anything alcoholic. He, not a, not a drinker, obviously, uh, and still isn't to this day, but that was, he told me, like, the only time that he ever agreed to have a sip of alcohol. I remember asking him, like, did you like it? He goes, no, it was terrible, but we just won the Stanley Cup. What am I supposed to do? Um, a delightful guy. And again, I cannot recommend uh, the Freedom to Win book enough should be on bookshelves everywhere because it is not just a story about hockey. It is, but it isn't, if you catch my drift. Uh, all right, thanks to everyone who stopped by the program today. Thanks to uh, Bobby Holik, who we just heard from. Thanks to Brian Lawton from the NHL Network. Uh, thanks to Gan- Danny Gare, who will be front and center and part of Scotiabank Hockey Day in Canada on Saturday. And Elliot Friedman, who we'll see in Victoria in a couple of days as 32 Thoughts live event Thursday at Wicked Hall in Victoria, B.C., home of this year's edition of Hockey Day in Canada. Thanks to Matt Marchese, David Siss, Lance Kennedy, Jen Rolnick. I'll be back on Friday. Matt Marchese uh, steers the Chevy here for a couple of days. How's that? Have a great afternoon. Thanks so much for listening across the Sportsnet Radio Network or watching on 360. I'll be back Friday. Matty Marchese in the next two days. Have a great one.